Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like crabs, pink and sanity. Sanity, I think, is a really good one uh, to do at the moment, Sam. I think the world is going insane. Or we could do rays, praise, haze... Days, ways, and trays. I think we should do the history. Trays. Do I think trays. we should do the That's history brilliant. of trays. I think that would be. It would be all about tobogganing, because we do have the Winter Olympics coming up, don't you know? My mm-hmm. friend, young Joe, is off filming in China at the moment for the Olympics, and apparently they have uh, most of the snow is fake. He was telling me. Hmm. Yes, there was very little snow where it, from his hotel room, except for yesterday when it was. When it was snowing a little bit, but probably not enough to ski down a mountainside. However, this is monstrously to digress, because what we should be doing, and what we will be doing, is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of generosity is in fact all about gift-giving and the change from Christmas being an adult affair to one being centred on children and the family from the Victorian period onwards. It's also about the ultimatum games and King Henry VI of England. It's about Roman charity, the Brontes, Austin, Walter Scott, Robert Burns. It's about Shakespeare and the Shakespeare Library, the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of resolutions, which was one of our belated but also recent recordings, is in fact all about leafing through old notebooks. It's about spiritual purity and self-improvement. It's about sobriety and English Methodism and, of course, John Wesley. It's also all about power in Tudor England. It's about paranoia and Victorian failure. And my favourite, it's about medieval shoe-throwing and jumping beans. Oh, and it's also all about the United Nations, diplomacy and international agreements. Who knew, yeah. Sam Willis? Oh, it was a good one. I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, the history of resolutions. There we go. Um, you're probably wondering who is introducing all of this to you. Let me say of my fellow presenter, if history were a dog show, not a dog, a dog show, this man wouldn't just judge the hounds or the gun dogs or the terriers or the utility dogs or the pastoral dogs or the toy dogs. No, he would be nothing less than the judge of best in historical show. If he were himself a dog, he would no doubt be a beagle, spaniel or greyhound, favourites of Henry VIII. He would never, ever bark in a library. He would never cock his leg in an archive. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James the Dog Daybell. Hello, Sam. Uh, and you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a dog related historian, he'd probably be a spaniel, which just happens to be my favourite dog. Since as a child, I had a pet springer spaniel called Susie. And I know you have a, a spaniel, but this is to digress. You would be a spaniel because of your faithfulness to study the history of the past, your role as a retriever of facts, a watchdog for (laughs) historical accuracy, no barking up the wrong tree for you, simply ravenous for the bones of a historical argument. Yes, you've guessed it. It's that faithful historical hound, your friend and mine, the historical adventurer himself, Samuel Willis. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, Before we begin... 
I, I learned a new word this morning. Okay, Ooh. write this down. How yeah. would you pronounce capital yeah. T? Yeah. J. Yeah. O. Yeah. H. Yeah. O O. Choho. 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 It is about <laughs> enjoy. It's a. It's a noise of enjoyment. Ah. Yes. Very good. I'm hoping uh, that I'm going to. I'm currently putting in a big research project grant uh, with a Swedish collaborator, a very wonderful historian. Uh, and he sent me this email this morning teaching me this new word and saying that he was hoping that in due course we would all shout, Choo-hoo! Hmm. So you should all go home and I've been saying nothing else all morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I and I promised him that I would mention it on the podcast. So And it's uh, it's just very specifically just kind of like unbridled joy or excitement, yes. is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean it, it's sort of I somebody said, um, is it like huzzah? And he said, Well, no, it's sort of it's more like a sort of you know, just a silly throwing your hands and legs in the air. Yeah. So to all our to all our Swedish listeners, uh, yeah. do get in um, touch. I reckon it's what I said in my mind, um, the Swedish part of my mind when I was given a puppy when I was a kid. Mm. That's the, uh, the the kind the kind of a childhood a joy that we're trying to recreate here. So, yes. um, and that brings I, us back to the topic that we're supposed to be talking about, which is <laughs> yes. dogs. It was brilliant, James. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> These are inspired broadcasting is what that uh, was. Absolutely. Um, dogs in your own history is what I wanted to start off with. So that moment of chihooing when I uh, was given Bonzo. Uh, Bonzo, his full name was Bonzo Oliver William Wilfred Oscar Willis. Mm. And his initials spelt Bow Wow, which oh, I thought was a stroke of, stroke, of, stroke of genius. Um, bearded Collie stinky, huge, woolly, uh, a wonderful thing. But it made me realise how I have memories of my own childhood which are sparked by memories of my dog. So the dog itself is a kind of a time machine in this sense, is that it, it, it has locked moments in my mind that would otherwise not be there, which I thought was was actually quite interesting. And then I was then I thought, well, what are those memories I have? I have very vivid memories of running in fields with him, fields of corn, fields of snow. Like it's like a kind of a weird slow motion memory thing in a film. Uh, and then I suddenly thought it might be utterly unrealistic. I was no doubt still locked in the understairs cupboard eating nothing but marmite. But I might have been out in the fields with my puppy. Um and I vividly remember uh my granny presenting me with a lovely scarf one christmas uh which i i loved uh, it was a very soft gray scarf it looked remarkably like uh the same color as my dog and then i discovered that it actually was made from bonzo's molted hair or the hair that was taken when we had to get him cut um which was great, but then I was terrified she was going to give me a lampshade made of human skin ever since then. But she never did that, and uh, we did manage to stop her knitting things out of the dog's fur. Um, uh, Bonzo died, very sad, uh, and it made me realise that dogs, I think, particularly give people, uh, certainly kids, often their very first experience of mourning. Um, and that, is, of course, is, is, is so important to the understanding of the passing of time, it's a kind of a profoundly historical moment in everyone's life when they first come to terms with death. And I, uh, mine was relatively untraumatic, um, which I was lucky with. Um, my my sister had a dog which was run over by a tractor, 
which was extremely traumatic. And it, it was certainly the first time that she came across um, a, a death of, of something that, which was traumatic. So she has a different memory uh, to uh, ours. Um, but I thought it was um, very interesting the way that it links all of these themes, uh, responsibilities, another one, caring for another, another, another being, another living being that isn't yourself for the first time. That's, that's something that's profoundly important for kids. And it helps them understand their, their, their place in the world and what humanity is, I think. Um, and then when you look back on it in your life, I think I'm 44 now looking back on it, you realise that these moments have kind of like paragraph breaks in your life uh, and that allows you to orientate all sorts of other things so all of these reasons James I think is why a dog is um is so important if you ever want to become a historian it is for me it was goldfish rather than mm. dogs that first introduced me to death it was the plastic bag carrying goldfish that uh, we won at the local fair, which also introduced me to the concept of cheating and cheapskates, mm. uh, because these were just these were people who were palming you off with substandard animals. But I too had a had a dog uh, when we grew up. Two dogs that I remember uh, that are sort of seared on my childhood memory. The first dog we kept for about two weeks. It was called Jasper, and it was from a stately home in the north of England. We lived in a little town called Hornsey in Yorkshire at the time, on the coast, not far from Beverley and Hull, just sort of inland. And my father had read this advert in a local newspaper for a, a, a pure breed Dalmatian, and so went to this sort of stately home to pick it up. And basically what we got was a very highly bred, um, but also incredibly bad behaved dog who pr promptly went on to bite my father uh, draw blood and my father said I am not having a dog that bites me so turned it back in within returned it in within two weeks and came home instead with a skipping rope for me to try and take my mind off the fact that I no longer <laughs> have a dog then we found a a dog at the other end of the social spectrum not a high-bred aristocratic pooch but in fact a very sweet farm dog a runt of the litter which was a working springer spaniel called Susie slightly smaller uh, than normal springer spaniels but cute as anything and one of my earliest memories was of her sitting inside my father's boot so small was she and I just remember my childhood as you said the paragraphs you know being sort of drawn uh, with sort of memories of a dog and this this little little spaniel was a constant uh, memory from the age of about eight through to uh, gosh into my 20s and I just remember her on several occasions uh, being very smelly, um, being um, quite hairy and getting hair all over the place. But also I remember the very sort of the very sort of sensitive thing. So I've got very fond, early, loving memories of her, but also the episodes that crop up to mind were, yes, her dying uh, later on and that was you know and actually seeing my parents in a very different light you know through their I was no longer living at home but I saw their response to her after my sister and I had moved away and I think the dog had then assumed a particular sort of emotional uh, role within their lives that maybe they hadn't had earlier on but also it was either things that were shocking that um 
that I remember one day waking up and the uh, the kitchen floor was just covered in blood and basically she had swallowed a chicken bone and was really ill. Uh, the other things that I remember were just really comic. Uh, so, for example, the time when my father had cooked probably the world's worst spaghetti bolognese and three plates of it had got put into the dog's bowl and the dog would just hoover up anything. And then I just remember her lying by the fire with a distended stomach and was just completely unable to move. And then the rules that were set within the household, that she was allowed to go in certain parts of the house and definitely not upstairs and definitely couldn't sleep on beds. And then almost every night, uh, lights went out and there'd be my sister's bedroom door would open and there'd be sort of footsteps padding down the stairs. <laughs> the kitchen door would open. The dog would then sort of be carried upstairs to my sister's room in her basket and would spend the night in my sister's bedroom. So those are my own <laughs> memories of... So I suppose that's sort of thinking about one's personal history through the prism of a of a pet, which in this instance is a dog. Hmm. Good stuff, isn't it? Really interesting. Very good I like stuff. stuff like that. And walks. Do you want to... Walks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to play dog or not dog? Oh, I'd love to. Yes. Okay. Uh, fox. <laughs> is a fox a dog or not a dog? Uh, I, I don't know, but I'm seeing foxes every evening on my nocturnal perambulations around Exeter at the moment, which is terrifying. Hmm. <laughs> yes. There's one that basically hangs out in my garden. Is it a dog or not a dog? It, it is a dog, yes. It is not a dog, I'm afraid. Oh, is it a wolf? It, wolf. Is it? What no, is I, it? I don't, what I is don't it? know. It's, oh. come, it, it's, it's something, but it's not a dog. They, they have some ancient similar lineage, but ah. it's not close enough to call it a dog. Ah. Uh, wolf, dog or not dog? Definitely a dog. Correct. <laughs> a wolf is a dog. Yes. Um, and uh, But for years, wolves and dogs were actually considered as being separate. But now uh, scientists uh, generally, generally agree that they are both uh, part of the subspecies Canis lupus, Ooh. which I thought was interesting. Um, but I also thought we could play dog or monster. Oh, uh, okay. But we would do this without me asking you a specific question. I'm going to uh, go werewolf. To talk about that's a, a that's monster. a dog monster. A, a werewolf. Oh, yeah, a werewolf or a dog monster. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I've talked briefly about this before, but it allows me to go into more depth. I want to talk about something called the Gevaudan Beast. Oh. Uh, this is from in France in the 1760s, a very remote region of south central France. Um, it's near the Massif Central. It's really very remote, uh, in even now. Um, but back in the 1760s, it's quite interesting. It's the 1760s, and it's not like the 1230s or something. It's um, it does this whole story seems 400 years more recent than I think it should be. Um, lots of people start dying in horrific ways, and there is thought to be a huge animal. It became known as the beast, um, without actually specifying whether it was a wolf, whether it was a dog, or whether it was a werewolf or anything like that. But it was known as the beast. But certainly, uh, it, it, the depictions of it, which which come, suggest it was some kind of large wolf or large dog. It was said to attack women and children, above all small girls, which I think is a very interesting part of this story and might uh, reveal all sorts of interesting anxieties um, to do with female power, perhaps, if you looked into it. Um, but what I really enjoyed about were the descriptions of it. So, so there, there, there are descriptions, even though no one's ever seen it. Um, the, the murders themselves are interesting, Um Often the victims are described as having their head removed and all of their blood 
drunk, leaving nothing behind but a pile of bones. Uh, the depictions, I said, are absolutely famous, and they often uh, have descriptions as well. This is from 1764, describing the beast as reddish-brown with dark, ridged stripe down the back, resembles a wolf or hyena, but big as a donkey. Long, gaping jaw, six claws, pointy, upright ears, and supple, furry tail. Mobile like a cat's and can knock you over. Cry more like a horse neighing than a wolf howling. And the images of it are absolutely fantastic. There's one, it's the kind of... the 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 beast is basically the size of a, of a cow, <laughs> sort of like a bull, um, attacking women and children. Uh, James, one of the things that really struck me about that first description I said was it reminded me of the Gruffalo <laughs> from 1919. <laughs> I love the who, Gruffalo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so fantastic. About So here we are. It's got a long, gaping jaw, six claws and pointy, upright ears. And then the Gruffalo uh, is this creature with terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws. He has knobbly knees and turned out toes and a poisonous wart at the end of his nose. His eyes are orange. His tongue is black. He's got purple prickles all over his back. Oh, help. Oh, no, it is the Gruffalo. Uh, fantastic stuff. But you really do get a sense of this sort of impossible beast um, from the descriptions. One of the, the fantastic things about it is the way that this thing is drawn as well. And this brings me back to what I was talking about in our recent episode on dinosaurs. So you've got these artistic interpretations of things, but no one knows what they actually look like. And so it's very revealing of the cultures in which they were created. So... Everyone, so Europe goes crazy about this Gewaldan beast. It becomes really important. It's it's actually one of the first kind of really powerful uh, international news stories. It really spreads across Europe in print. But it's very interesting how so a German print from September sixteen four shows a very different looking animal from the French depictions, from the British depictions, whatever it might be. The German one looks like a kind of a sort of four legged kangaroo more more than anything else. Um, but it's very Teutonic. And um, I thought the depictions of it were fantastic. Anyway, um, France gets very interested in it. The whole thing, it's driven by the king, Louis XV. He offers a reward to capture this beast. Uh, nothing happens. Eventually, someone captures uh, a huge wolf. It's stuffed. It's put on display in Versailles. Uh, but the, the attacks continue. Um, but once the, the the royalty have lost interest, then the press lose interest in, as well. It's a very interesting part of the story that makes you realise the relationship or the power of um, royalty uh, and also the power of the press at this early, early period of, um, I suppose, tabloid journalism as well. Um, it's also very revealing about collective psychosis. There's no doubt that a lot of people believed in this. Um it's revealing, I think, about uh, peasant life in a particular area of of France, which was largely ignored. And then you have this huge influx of people who were all sent down there to try and track the beast. And they all write diaries of what it's like in this part of France. Um, no one really liked it there at all, which I thought was interesting. Um, one depiction here, snow, hail, thunderstorms, wind, wet feet. I beg you, sir, if you have not already left for the Gavaldan yourself, forget about it. This is an abominable country with terrible food. And it's got to bear in mind as well that the people who are living there are scared out of their wits. We know that the whole area was absolutely plagued by wolves. So, James, all sorts of interesting histories that are going on here. You've got um, a lack of education you've got a lack of literacy you've got 
um, an area where myths suddenly grow up and they're believed and then spread all throughout Europe and there is more belief or wanting to believe in a story which seems implausible. So different levels, I think, in, in wanting to believe an implausible, a crazy story. Um, and I, I think the way that the landscape involved in this is really interesting as well and that there were um, so many wolves in this area that um, there are about 30 place names now which have loop or lube, uh, L-O-U-B-E, um, which are part of the place name, obviously derived from the French wolf at the time. So a fascinating story. It um, had Europe in its grip in the 18th century. And uh, one thing is certainly true is that, so that there was something killing people in uh, Gewaldan in the 1760s. And it would, may have been um, a large wolf or a dog. Terrifying, Sam. Utterly terrifying. I mean, I think that that's fascinating. Sort of thinking about, about the sort of stories associated with ferocious dogs. I mean, this also gets me thinking about the about real dogs, and that's the sort of direction that I want to go in. And when we looked at the history of cats, we looked at a sort of alternative history of cats, and you know the 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 kinds of ways in which we think about cats as feline pets nowadays was very different to the kind of history that we actually gave of cats and a lot of our podcast there was about violence to cats which got me thinking about how do we start thinking about the history of dogs and what kinds of uses do dogs have and you think about dogs as hunters you think about dogs as guard dogs so some of the practical things that they have and that then led me to start thinking about dogs as pets and the rise of dogs being actually kept for companionship you know whether they be companions for children whether they be family pets whether they be you know pets pets for the elderly or, or pets for women and, and you can think here of the rise of the lap dog in the 18th century but also you can see that sort of increasing popularity of dogs from the late medieval period onwards through into the Tudor period certainly among the elite where what we might term but hopefully not too anachronistically pet dogs uh, were certainly kept sort of little lap dogs were kept uh, and and dogs were given as gifts you mentioned in your own introduction uh, Henry VIII having various sort of dogs I mean many of those are associated with hunting and activities but certainly at the Tudor court you could see dogs being given uh, as as gifts to to high profile women so on a lady lyle for example when she was trying to put her daughters into the court as maids of honor and trying to make a good match marriage for them she gave a, a gift of a dog uh to anne boleyn uh at the time um uh, apparently the the dog died in 1534 uh, when it was supposed to have fallen from a window and rumour has it uh, that, uh, that Anne Boleyn was heartbroken at this. There's another example of Mary Queen of Scots having a, a favoured sort of small lap dog. Uh, so much so, so fond was she that the dog uh, accompanied her on the scaffold when she was executed and apparently had to be sort of taken off and then it managed to sort of work its way up into her skirts uh, when it was later found and had to be hosed down because it was covered uh, in her blood and so we can we can go on tracing this 
this history of of dogs as as sort of pets and companions. But one of the things that struck me doing my reading was that dogs were also taxed. And I want to talk a little bit about the dog tax of 1796, because they were also not just the sort of, you know, man's best friend as they become, not just sort of family pets, but they were also associated with rabies and regular contagions of rabies. And so what gets passed in 1796 is a law through Parliament that basically taxes dogs and people who can't uh, pay or refuse to pay will be fined. Um, But also there is a history, an earlier history leading up to that in the 18th century when there are various sort of outbreaks of disease Uh, that are recorded during this period, all the way back to the 1730s. And various sort of cities and towns uh, and counties periodically would would try and um, remove dogs from the streets in order to prevent contamination. For example, this happened in 1738 in Edinburgh, when magistrates of the city issued a proclamation that basically said that every owner whose dog had bitten another one should destroy the dog for fear of rabies, so they should have it killed, and that every other dog owner should remove their dog from the city streets for at least a month in order to let the contagion you know, um, of rabies um, you know, diminish. If they failed to do that, they could face either a year in prison, up to a year in prison, or pay a five shilling fine per dog. And we have there's an extract from in the of an article in the Gentleman's Magazine in April 1738 that refers to the violence uh, that that basically took place after this proclamation when people set about trying to get dogs uh, in uh, in um, in in Edinburgh and I just want to read you a little bit of this because it's quite extraordinary so Edinburgh complaint being made um, the eighth instant of the magistrates that a mad bull bitch belonging to a butcher had bit many dogs in the flesh market to prevent the fatal consequences that must very justly be apprehended from such a number of furious mastiffs in this populous place, the magistrates issued a proclamation, the title of which was ordering all dogs belonging to that incorporation to be forthwith put to death, penalty of one shilling sterling, and imprisonment to the owners for twelve calendar months, nor are they to keep dogs for thirty days to come. Also ordering all citizens, I'm going over the page here, and inhabitants to remove their dogs from the city and liberties, and empowering the city guard and town officers to kill all dogs that should be seen on the streets after next day at noon, and requiring the town treasurer to pay one shilling sterling reward for each dog so killed. 
the st- and you can imagine what that does. You know, suddenly any dog that's found on the street, you pay a shilling. This leads Sam to dog killers. The street, <laughs> the street caddies, etc., went very early in obedience to this edict. For the drum had scarce gone round to intimate the same when they fell a knocking on the head of all the suspicious or ill-affected curs, some of which they hanged on signposts, etc. And with diff- in other words, this is the dogs. And with difficulty, could they be restrained from killing the dogs that led the blind about the streets or attacking the ladies with their lapdogs? A detachment of the city guard was ordered down to the butcher market when they made very clean havoc of all the dogs there saturday at noon the town's officers being provided with large oaken clubs went a dog hunting and killed every cur they could see or heard of the magistrates of leith ordered all the dogs of their town to be put to death accordingly the curs were drove into the harbour and drowned or knocked on the head Several gentlemen and others sent off their dogs to the country to avoid the act, and a certain writer sent his favourite dog, Tipsy, to Haddington in a cloak bag. So you can see the incredible sort of response of people to this. Um, so and one of the problems with this is that what it does is it, it basically sets a situation where you have, you know, greedy dog killers who would basically just, you know, who would go around, you know, killing dogs for a shilling. Um, There were then various discussions after that, throughout the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, about whether there should be a a dog tax or not. So there is a huge sort of debate. There are pros and cons. There's a way in which, um, you know, it is seen as ridding people of the sort of you know threat of rabies there are others that saying well there isn't really a connection necessarily between you know between what they see as as hydrophobia which is the human disease that follows the biting by a mad dog they don't sort of necessarily connect that to to dogs others say that actually you know it it would be the tax would be avoided people would avoid it which would be problematic that it would mean that only the wealthy could, you know, could afford dogs and actually that dogs became companions for people. But, you know, in 1796, it is passed and it leads to a whole wealth of discussion in popular literature and satirising about the, the, the situation that it only lasts for two years when it is replaced by a property tax instead. So there we are, Sam. Uh, all, the, all the way from dogs as man's best friend or woman's best friend, the family's best friend, and pets, lap dogs, all the way through to the dog tax and dog killers. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Um, I found a, a wonderful image of a dog pooing in the corner of a Titian uh, 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 woodcut a huge woodcut it's called the submersion of pharaoh's army in the red sea and um i read a wonderful article about this when it suggests that this may be the first image of a defecating dog in italian renaissance art because it's a theme that comes back time and time again uh, and it's also in raphael's work it's in rembrandt's work so they're really enjoying drawing um some uh, dogs doing their business in the corner of their of their work which is interesting because often uh, in 
sort of marginalia, manuscript marginalia and artwork. It's, there's a, if there's a scatological pooey theme, it's often to do with humans or human-like apes doing it. It's a suggestion of... Um, it's a satirical inversion, isn't it, of, the, of what, what, what is normal. Uh, but a dog doing it is quite interesting. And as far as I can work out, no um, historian has really got to the bottom of it at all, apart from saying that they're trying to appeal to an educated, um, uh, sort of sensible, sophisticated audience and also an audience who enjoys a bit more uh, of the rough and ready. I'm not sure that's entirely convincing, but um, I certainly do think that when you look at an image like this with a dog weeing in the corner or pooing in the corner, it takes the the kind of the fake gleam away from whatever it is that's being depicted. It makes it feel very much more real, very much more alive, very much more kind of human. It's a, it's a, it's a warts and all approach to uh, depicting the past. So I think whoever is doing this in the Renaissance, there seems to have been a bit of a theme going on with all of these wonderful artists drawing pooey dogs. Um, it might be just a way of um, of just just poking the viewer a bit and saying, you know, actually this is a what you're looking at might be painted in a very grandiose way, but it's a very deeply human story after all. And I quite like the historical bent of that idea, James, because it makes you not necessarily believe, not necessarily trust the wonderful things that you're reading about or looking at, and it kind of encourages you to see the humanity beneath it all yes and that also that uh that idea of of a dog defecating in the corner connects in some sort of bizarre way in my mind to uh, boris johnson at the moment and operation big dog uh there was a very funny <laughs> uh th- th- this idea that everyone is sort of you know expected to gather round and and man the barricades to protect um Boris Johnson that l- that that scoundrel um from being <laughs> uh, being toppled as prime minister and there was a wonderful um wonderful cartoon in the guardian the other day that has him as a as a dog with a dog collar and you know it's when david davis says for you know for god's sake get rid of him or whatever the the sort of paraphrase of that um, but for god's sake resign man yeah. that sort of paraphrasing of it and and he sort of parrots back that kill you know basically getting his sort of team to to sort of kill the what who was seen as the rebellious ones but that that is that's taking us in a completely different direction from the one i wanted to go to before i go in the direction that i wanted to go to i was riffing on your your mention of dogs dying and i think one of the things that we can we can find is all sorts of poetic epigrams epitaphs about faithful dogs that have died and i have one for you here called on the death of a lady's spaniel i thought this was very suiting not that you're a lady but you you have a spaniel here lifeless lies beneath his na- this narrow space the faithful set of Charles's royal race, who late possessed more spirit and good nature than's often found in many two-legged creature. Terrible rhyme there. Um, her sportive wiles and gratitude sincere made her the constant favourite of the fair. How jealous were the envious swains to see the honours beauties have bestowed on thee. Hail, happy jet, in life how great thy bliss, whom lovely Susan blessed with many a kiss, whose death distended 
her soft breast with sighs and drew the tears from Bradley's radiant eyes on the death of a lady spaniel. But I didn't want to go there at all. I wanted very briefly to end by talking about guide dogs. And one of the things that we talked about, that I talked about in the dog tax bit, uh, was was these terrible people out in uh, in Edinburgh uh, clubbing to death uh, dogs that were actually you know seeing people around you know they were actually guiding so the blind man's dog and there are there is quite a history of dogs it's not until the 20th century that it starts becoming organized and there are various um initiatives to properly train dogs uh, initiatives in Germany, initiatives in America and initiatives in Britain. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Britain. But there are references, such as the one that I gave earlier, to dogs being used uh, to guide blind people uh, in the past. And there are various sort of literary references that can be dated back to the Tudor period. Uh, the second line of a, of a verse alphabet was... Uh, a was on archer and b was b was a blind man led by a dog uh, we can also see in dickens's christmas carol there's the line even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him which is a depiction of scrooge and when they saw him coming on would tug their masters into doorways and up courts and then would wag their tails as though they said no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. There's also evidence, and this links us back to what we were talking about with volcanoes, and we talked about Vesuvius and Pompeii, and on one of the walls of a house in Herculaneum, uh, which was, as we know, buried by the volcano Vesuvius when it erupted in 79 um, CE, uh, there is the, the pictures of a blind man being guided by a dog. Uh, there is also, if we go sort of later on, um, one of the sort of in Europe, one of the sort of first uh, tra animal training schools is in, established in Germany in in World War One, um, and and it's really from you know from here uh, that we see. Um, guide dog training being taken from Germany into the United States and then into Britain. Um, so this links to 1923 Potsdam in Germany, a guide dog training centre was set up which trained thousands of dogs uh, over a, a period of a decade. And the work that they're doing um, comes to the attention of a woman called Dorothy Harrison Eustace, who's a wealthy American woman um, who is living in Switzerland, and she's involved in breeding German shepherds, uh, not to be guide dogs, but instead for service in the police, in the army, uh, for custom service. So these are sort of guard dogs that um, uh, that you know, are being used by the forces and government, state officials for various reasons. And she visits the Potsdam Centre and is greatly impressed by it. And she writes an article uh, in October 1927 of her experience, describing how impressed she is of it. And it appears in the American Saturday Evening Post 
in in October of that year, 1927. And a few days after this magazine appeared, uh, there's a young man called Morris Frank, who is a, a blind uh, young American man who's told about the the article and he describes later on that they bought an article that was worth more than a million dollars to me it changed my life and what he does is he 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 gets in touch with mrs eustace in switzerland and he says he says i want one of those dogs um and thousands of blind people like me abhor being dependent on others help me and i will help them and basically what what happens is this leads to the setting up of an initiative to start training these these dogs uh, and mrs eustace gets in touch with uh, the person who's in charge of her kennels a guy called elliot humphrey and he goes off to germany and he learns how to train guide dogs uh, or what become guide dogs and this guy this 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 uh, morris frank basically becomes the first owner of a guide dog uh, in america now the activities of what is happening in america catch the attention of two women uh, living in britain uh, and these women are named miss muriel crook who is a German shepherd enthusiast, and Mrs. Rosamund Bond. And again, she is a, a breeder of German shepherd dogs. She's also somebody who's who's involved in exhibiting them. So she's into sort of, you know, dog shows and, and showing how sort of how good they are. And these two get together and they decide to write to Mrs. Eustace and show great interest and find out what they've what she's been doing. And after they've sort of exchanged a correspondence over a period of time, the three of them meet up in London on the 23rd of September in 1930. And basically, after their discussion, Mrs Eustace, this American woman who set up this organisation, decides that she would lend the man that she uses to do the training for her to run a trial scheme in Britain. And so in the second half of 1930, the first half of 1931, they set up uh, the sort of start of an organisation uh, and find a, a training spot um, to be able to do the first training and get the first people in to be able to you know, benefit from these, from these dogs. And in February 1931... Miss Crook and Mrs Bond with some new supporters, so Lady Kitty Ritson uh, and a man called Captain Alan Sington, go to London and they meet there with the National Institute for the Blind. Now, this meeting uh, doesn't go as well as you'd think it, it would, because basically the they've been involved in raising uh, money. A, and they've raised the sum of £284 and they're told by the Institute for the Blind that in fact this is illegal. They shouldn't have been <laughs> they shouldn't have been been doing this. Um uh, but there is a, a solution is found, and the solution is that the guide dog committee basically affiliate in some way with the institute, and that's a way of getting round it. And then what we have is a is um on the 1st of July 1931, Mrs Eustace's trainer, uh, a man called William Debatatz, 
who turns up with her kennel, the man who runs her kennels, um, Elliot Humphrey. Um, he turns up in England, uh, or the two of them turn up in England, and they find 28 German shepherd uh, bitches, so female dogs, um, that they acquire from various places. And they set up the first class for October that year. Um, and we know about this because Humphrey writes to Miss Crook from Switzerland on the 19th of October 1931 describing it. And he writes, I suppose the class will be finishing about the time you get this letter. Tell them all they have my heartiest good wishes. Without you, he continued, the work could not have been done. I only hope that it has been done in such a manner that you will be glad to have been connected with it and that the men will have done their work so that as they go out with their new eyes you will have a real catch in your throat as you see the shuffle gone from their feet and their heads thrown back as they take a new outlook on life. In other words, he's describing the, the blind people or the partially sighted people who are benefiting from these these dogs no words of mine nor of theirs can thank you for your part in helping them to such new liberty as you may find and one of the extraordinary things is not only do we have his letters but we've also got letters from the blind people who were using these guide dogs and I'm just going to read some extracts from a couple of them there's a man called Thomas Ap Rees who wrote with folly, I do not mind walking at the fastest pace or even running with her. Um, in other words, he's using uh, this guide dog. And he continues to use the guide dog for 48 years until he died in 1979 at the age of 82. And at that stage, he was on his sixth dog. And he, he died while he was training the, the sixth dog to, to work with him. Another... Um, Another individual, G.W. Lamb, wrote, After negotiating a one-to-one -one obstacle, we went away merrily, the crowd saying what a good dog it was. Um, Musgrave Franklin, another, another person, declared, A guide dog is almost equal in many ways to giving a blind man sight itself. Judith has been worth her weight in gold. I would not be without her for a day. So, you know, I, I I think this is an extraordinary story about the the kinds of uses that dogs would have made, the training that went on, the sort of fledgling um, sort of start that was given to developing these early societies for, you know, for for training guide dogs and the impact that these these animals had on their owners the kind of you know in being their eyes and i suppose it's the way in which as historians we are able to access the history of people uh who were unable to see wonderful stuff worth her weight in gold i really like that lovely indeed um guys i hope you've enjoyed our history of dogs we'll come back with more wonderful stuff in the coming week so do please stay tuned please leave us a review on itunes it does make a huge difference uh, to how many people listen to the podcast and that will help us uh, on our mission to change the way that people think about the past you can follow me on twitter i'm at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history the history of the sea do please check out my other podcast the mariner's mirror podcast 
And you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast it also has a Twitter handle. It is at Unexpected Pod. We are on Instagram and Facebook. So come and friend us there uh, and leave us a review as well. Um, you can also check out our back catalogue on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. You can also see our books and other things that we've been up to, including our homeschooling episodes. If you're interested in that, either for your yourselves or for your children uh, and if you want to support what we're doing and become a patron of histories of the unexpected head over to patreon.com where you can support us to help change the way in which people think about the past but meanwhile be well stay healthy and we'll see you really soon thanks for listening guys cheerio guys bye bye When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.